Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and you're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show. Uh, welcome back to the new series, and Happy New Year. Uh, today we'll be talking about moral psychology. I have with me Constantine Sandis from Oxford Books University, Alex Gregory from Reading University, and Michael Lacewing from Haythorpe College, University of London. Sean Hender and Adam Leach will be providing live music. So let's just dive straight into it. Uh, what is moral psychology? Um, so moral psychology Alex, addresses Alex, this is. moral psychology addresses issues at the intersection of the study of morals and the study of mind. Uh-huh. So a sort of central question is uh, how people can be motivated to be moral, but this spills in over into general questions about uh, decision making, motivation, and responsibility. Okay, great. Um, anybody want to add anything to that? That sounds right to That's me. That's Constantine. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I would, I would agree with that. Um, in the questions of, of motivation, for instance, and decision-making, then some of the examples of the things that uh, philosophers and psychologists who are interested in moral psychology would talk about would be um, reason and emotion and the uh-huh. relation between those. Um, I mean, the two big ideas i suppose in the history of of ethics is that uh morality is really something which uh we are we are is a result of our rationality mm-hmm. um famously associated with somebody like kant okay. but then of course another idea um famous from many of the world religions is that morality is is um really to do with love or sympathy or uh-huh. something like that benevolence towards other people so moral psychologists are interested in the in the psychological um, aspects of those questions, the role that emotions and reasoning plays. Okay, how does um, how does moral psychology differ from like traditional morality in in philosophy or dif- or ethics? They might call it. Uh, Constantine, do you want to have a go? I on think that? one question is whether moral psychology is a kind of distinct branch of ethics. So uh-huh. normally, people divide ethics into. Um, what they call normative or theoretical ethics, which, which is really theories about how one ought to behave. Right. Um, so consequentialism would be a, an obvious such theory. The, based on the consequences of your actions um, is what is good, yeah? That's right. So it would tell you, you should do whatever maximises the good, and then right. you plug in a theory of what goodness is. Right. Um, and then there's practical ethics, where some people think you apply these theories to particular situations to, to get an answer about what you should do. And then some might think, well, moral psychology is yet a third branch of, of moral philosophy that does neither of these two things. What does it do differently? Um, you might think it asks questions about, um, like we said, the mind and motivation and so on. But then again, you might think, no, it's not really a third branch. You, you kind of well, need it to answer the sh- other two. Sure, what I'm getting at, though, is surely the other branches of eth- the other type approaches to ethics, they ask questions about motivation. Why does moral psychology differ from that? Insofar as they, aren't, insofar as they ask questions about motivation, it seems to me that they're doing moral psychology. Really? So, the, so the division between these subjects is quite blurry at times. Right. Um, but I'm not sure that's a, that's a problem. That seems perfectly fine. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I, would agree, I would agree with that. I mean, the, the, the three main ideas that uh, in, in normative ethics Which that, means, branch sorry, of, normative yeah, means. that that branch of, of studying morality to provide a theory about what we should do the right. three big ideas are whether an action is right or wrong depends on the motive right that you have for doing it mm-hmm. um whether an action is right or wrong depends on the consequences of the action right or a third one is whether it fits into what a virtuous person a person with right. a virtuous character okay. now those are all three of those have certain 
commitments to well what would motivate us right. um, or they often do motivations according yeah so to the for theory, instance yeah. if you thought that what you ought to do is to make the most number of people happy right. you would expect that theory to go with a moral psychology which said we are motivated by our concern for people's happiness could right. be okay. a, an okay. obvious part so so normative theories have moral psychological implications uh-huh. yeah or assumptions or assumptions. So moral psychologists mm. is, is isolating that part. It's not an attempt to say okay. what is right or so wrong. It's not, but why it's do not people trying do to, do? to get the right moral theory? It's trying to get the right moral motive or suss out people's moral motivations. Is that right? But that could affect which theory is is okay. the right one. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, what sort of things can moral psychology tell us which traditional eth- ethical philosophy can't? Well, one way in which you might think ethical theories are constrained is by what's sort of psychologically realistic for us. Uh-huh. So if you had some theory that told you you ought to make great sacrifices all the time for the expense of other people, and human beings, let's imagine, just aren't capable of that, yeah. you might think that was a mark against the theory, at least and to some extent, that what it asked us to do we're just not capable of doing. That might be a problem for the theory. Uh-huh. That's right. So some philosophers think that ought implies can, which means something like if you should do something, you must be able to do it. And maybe more psychology can tell us things about the, the, limits. Um, the limits, So especially psychological ability, for example, okay. to overcome certain kinds of obstacles. Mm-hmm. So what sort of th- limits would it place upon our, our moral obligations then? I mean, according to the sort of the, the present level of the theory, if you want to put it like that. Well, it depends a lot on who you ask and what sort of views they've got okay. in moral psychology. Well, uh, I, I'm interested in your personal view, so what would you say, for instance, Alex? Oh, that's a difficult question. Um, can, I, can I try... Um, sure, so this is constant. One question, um, one issue might be whether you think you can um, act against your own desires, whether your desires mm. might be a bad thing that you overcome, or whether right. you think we always do what we most desire, for example. So you, you might think that um, duty and desire are kind of um, opposites, or you might think they have to come together in, in yeah, some way. That's right. Mm-hmm. Another um, idea that, that goes back to the ancient Greeks is, is the notion of achieving some kind of psychological harmony. So Plato yeah. and Aristotle put a lot of emphasis on the thought that, if you like, we, we have different motivational systems or um, different ways that the mind relates to uh, our thoughts about the world and what we want and what to do, and that one of the most important things that we can do is to bring these into harmony. Okay. Now, that receives a particular twist and development in ideas, for instance, from psychoanalysis. Freud also emphasised the idea that... Um, there is these different parts of the of, of the mind. Um, they have different functions, and they can come into conflict with each other. And then you can ask a, a very important question: Is the no, is the is the objective of psychological harmony mm-hmm. something which is which is worth striving for? Is it something which human beings are capable of? Freud himself was quite pessimistic yeah. about this. But other psychoanalysts have been quite optimistic about this. So that's the sort of theory of human nature, which might get, give you a sense as to whether, for instance being moral at all is something which human beings um, could really feel comfortable with or whether we'll always feel there's a struggle to be morally good I mean doesn't uh, traditionally morality always involves some sort of idea of sacrifice for instance wouldn't that would that be contrary to moral psychological theory 
I guess there's um, debates between people who th- who think that um, there can be such a thing as altruism, so mm. that sacrifice is possible, and those who think it's possible tend to think it's also a desirable thing, yeah. and those who seem to think that strictly speaking all all acts are um um in self-interest or something like that right, so that okay. um, there's no such th- sacrifice is impossible therefore mm-hmm. we can't demand it of, of people all right um what, just getting a bit more particular now what sort of questions are, are you personally as as philosophy department lecturers and researchers interested in in moral psychology uh, Alex, what, what questions interest you about this area? Um, so I'm most interested in the role of desires in explaining our actions uh-huh. and in justifying them. Mm. So there's one thought that we always ought to act in ways that satisfy our desires. Uh-huh. This is a relatively sort of popular view. Um, and one motivation for holding that view is to say, well, look, we're only ever motivated to act by our desires. So it would be sort of, as Constantine was saying, sort of ought implies can principle. It could never be true that we ought to do something we didn't want to do because we're not, just not capable of doing that. So the question is, is it really true that we're only capable of being motivated to act by our desires? That's the view I've got a lot of interest in. Uh-huh. Do you have a conclusion on that, or are you still like... Uh, well, so I have quite a strange view. So I think it's true that we're only ever motivated to act by our desires. Um, but I think the significance of that view depends a lot on what you take a desire to be. Yeah. Right. So I take desires to be roughly sensitivities to what's of value in the world. Okay. So on that view, we're only motivated to act by our desires, but there's still a pretty good place in motivation for moral considerations to play a role. All right. Okay. So, uh, Constantine, what do you? What's your uh, well, being your you, bonnet? I I also came into moral psychology from what we might call um, action explanation or accounts of how to explain action. Um, but I was initially more interested in the role of reasons uh-huh. and comparing maybe moral reasons to. Um, um, reasons wh- why we act, what's sometimes called motivating reasons. Okay. And there's various debates in philosophy about um, what kind of things are they? Are they the same things? If you read a lot of con- cognitive psychology or philosophy of mind, they might say these are mental states or neurological states mm-hmm. even. Whereas if you read um, normative ethics, or uh, like we were talking about before, and practical ethics they'll say that reasons are facts or states of the world or okay. something like that. I think we're going to be talking about a bit between of the conflict between possible conflict between de- desire and reason in in the second part of the program. But um okay Michael what what about you what particularly interests you in this uh, field? Um I came into this through thinking about emotions right. and the role that emotions play not so much in moral action but in our moral judgments. Okay. So, um, why do we think certain things are right or wrong, and why? How do we justify those um, those judgments? So, um, my research then took me into um, the sort of complexity of emotional life that human beings have, and that took me into the area of of psychoanalysis and looking at that. So, for instance, mm-hmm. um, like Alex, um, a lot of philosophers, uh, myself included, think desires and emotions are responses to things that we find to be valuable in the world. So, okay. if I'm angry, I get angry because I think that what's just happened is in some way, for instance, offensive or injurious right. um, to me. Um, and if I'm sad, that's because I think something of value has been lost. So, those would be examples of that kind of thing. Now, our emotions go all over the place. They don't always align mm. with what we actually think is right. Right, right, morally right, or of what's of real value. I can really want that piece of cake, but it's after Christmas, I'm trying to lose weight. So there's a conflict between what I think. So in that case, if our emotions are how we f- discover what's of value, 
What do we do when our emotions conflict? Okay, um, that's a good question. I think we're going to start with that question once we come back from the music. And, and to give us the, the live music here, we have uh, Sean Hender on the cello and Adam, Le- Adam Paul Leach on the guitar and singing. And their first song will be called Long Black Train. That's
Thank you, Eddie. That was a long black train, and we'll have another song or two from them later. Okay, I'm Grant Bartley. You're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show. I have with me uh, Alex Gregory from Reading University, Constantine Sandis from Oxford Books, and Michael Lacewing from Hayfrock College, the University of London. We're talking about moral psychology, and uh, uh, I just want to dive in with this sort of central question of, of uh, traditional philosophy of uh, morality, if you like, which is, um, is reason more important for influencing our moral behaviour or whether we decide to behave morally or not, or as Kant, somebody like Kant might say, or is our emotion, the mo- emotional motivation more important, as somebody like Hume would have said? Uh, who wants to start with that one? I suppose I'm, I'll start. I mean, I, Alex. I wonder whether this is really a competition as though one of these is going to win. You might uh-huh. say, look, sometimes we're motivated by our emotions and sometimes we're motivated by reason. Uh-huh. Um, and, there's, yeah, there's no sort of competition here. It's just different circumstances, different things motivate us. Uh, uh, OK, so in which case, which is where does the balance lie between them? Uh, um, well, there's also... Constantine. Uh, going back to balance... Um, a kind of hidden assumption in the way you phrased your question, right. um, which is maybe that um, emotions can't be rational, or that somehow w- what is an emotion is different from what is reason. Uh, well, I, I t- um, okay. Traditionally, though, philosoph- uh, philosophers in this area have, so- as going back to, I think, Socrates, I would say that they're two different, you know, that you can have a conflict between them, and the question is, when, you're, when your reason tells you to do something, and you're... Uh, emotions or your passions tell you to do another thing, then which of them is going to win out? Well, I, I, I think that you're right that, that that contrast goes back to Socrates. And one of the exciting things of the last sort of 30 years... In moral psychology. In moral psychology, in psychology and in philosophy, right. has to, to, to be... Com- to, sorry, to completely rethink that contrast. Right. Um, there was a very famous book in the mid-1990s by a neuroscientist called Antonio Damasio called uh-huh. Descartes' Error, uh-huh. in which, um, using neuroscientific evidence, he argued that our moral reasoning, um, and the, the part of our brain involved in moral reasoning, drew very heavily on those parts of our brain which were involved in our emotional responses. Yeah. And he did this partly by showing that people who had damage to their emotional responses weren't, in fact, capable of doing moral reasoning in the, in the normal sense right. in which we yeah. Expect, accept that. Now, I mean, there's a there's a lot of empirical evidence, both from neuroscience and elsewhere, that these that, that we have two sets of responses. Um, but whether they fall into the rational and the emotional doesn't seem quite right at all. Right. And sometimes psychologists make the same problematic assumption that if they are talking about the emotions, they've got to be talking about a non-rational system. So, but I just don't think so that follows. It seems to be more the case that our emotions. It, I mean, which way round is it? That our emotions uh, sort of guide our reasons, or do our reasons guide the formations of our emotions? I mean, you're t- two. You're both interested in these areas. What would you say about Yeah, I these? think that's a v- very good question, Grant. And um, uh, one question is the one about guidance, as, y- as you put it. Mm-hmm. And another is whether we could be motivated at all if we lacked one of these two things. So you might think, if ideally we should only be guided by our reason, right. then... Um, we could know everything we need to know about morality and act on it without having any emotions, any sentiments at all. Like and that's, Mr. Spock, And yeah. that's like Mr. Spock. And that's one kind of pop- popular view. On the other hand, there are those who, who think that somehow, um, if there was no such thing as 
caring or love or emotion or sentiment. Uh-huh. Um, we either couldn't be motivated to act, or perhaps even worse, we, we wouldn't even be able to um, have the right moral judgments. Okay. Well, Alex, on your scheme, how how do the uh, desires and reasons relate together? I mean, what, and what happens if they conflict? Do they conflict ever? Um, so I'm somewhat inclined to think that uh, desires just are sort of beliefs about what we have reason to do, but we've got at least some justification for doing it. Could you give me an example, for instance? Um, so, I don't know, I want to pursue a career in philosophy, right. and part of that is I think I've got some good reason to do that. I think there's something worthwhile about that pursuit. Uh-huh. Um, perhaps it's isn't a moral choice, but there's some sort of justification there nonetheless. There's yeah. some value at stake. Um, so in a sense, I think that desires fall under the sort of reason side of this divide. But we do have to be quite careful with that for the simple reason that often we form our beliefs in quite irrational ways. So we shouldn't think the divide between our, sort of, our reason and our other faculties is one between our beliefs and other faculties. So one of the problems is our, our reason is often irrational. Yeah, exactly right. Mm, that makes things exponentially complicated, doesn't it? I, I, I would take a different view from, from, from Alex in that um, I, I think that the emotions are in some sense important, psychological sense, um, more fundamental than reason and uh-huh. so reason is something which works from an emotional base so in that i'm more influenced by somebody like hume than by yeah. Kant. sorry li- li- to those who don't know hume said that uh that without without your passion as he would have put it meaning, meaning your emotions you wouldn't be motivated to do anything even whatever your reasons were yes that's right i don't think it just applies to motivation though um Constantine said earlier, even worse, it could affect our judgments. I think it actually starts there, that we make the moral judgments that we make Mm -hmm. through having the emotions that we do. And so, um, for me, uh, I think the way in which we find out about what is truly of value, Mm -hmm. um, of course it involves a lot of thinking, in that sense reasoning, but it also involves a transformation of the emotions that we have. So it involves reflecting on our emotions. And you get this in traditions of, of virtue ethics. So Christianity thinks that um, you need you need to become a certain kind of loving right. person, and when you are, then you can really see what is of value. And Buddhism has some similar ideas about how we need to purify our emotional responses to the world. In, in other words, we train we train our emotions to, to so that we become the sort of people that we uh, we want to be in terms of our behaviour. Is that yes. what you're basically saying? Yes, and I think that actually affects our knowledge of what is right and wrong, and not just right. our motivation to do what is right. Okay, um, one idea that I've, I've read in this area is that, that our emotions are a product of our moral, our innate sort of moral uh, abilities or responses rather than our emotions causing our moral responses. What do you think about that? Well, clearly we have some innate moral opinions. So most people find... Clearly? Oh, incest, for instance. Most people find morally repulsive. Right. Um, and I don't think that's a learned thing. I think that's quite clearly an innate thing that we're born with for fairly obvious evolutionary reasons okay um at the same time it seems pretty clear to me that emotional responses like that we can undermine by reasoning about the question i mean as i have to ask whether this is right or wrong but in principle we could undermine this emotional feeling by reasoning about the question and deciding just how we ought to feel about it okay um i I would agree that there are some innate i mean human beings being what they are we have um a a very large number of innate dispositions as a result 
of evolution in well, large part so it looks like, like what well i think we're set up to 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 feel certain types of emotion okay uh-huh. so there seem to be in one way in which psychologists like test this fear and fear sadness disgust happiness right um are some i mean the the list changes there's a, a and the way that psychologists do this is they look at what's universal and they think if something's universal that's a good argument like all human beings have it all cultures have it it's a good argument for thinking that it's innate whereas if cultures differ then that's a good argument for thinking that it, it's a product of that culture there's something specific about it so back in the 1970s a psychologist called paul ekman looked tried to understand which emotions were universal and in the 70s he came up with a list of six which included those four and a couple of others mm-hmm. but now his list is something like 19 right. different emotions so I mean, with yeah. all empirical investigation the more you do the answers change yeah but then there's a question as to how that gets taken up so for instance fear can become guilt or it can become shame or something like that or disgust can become shame now how does that change so it might well, not be I'm, that i would just say sure, surely it's the case that um not all emotional reactions are, or even the basic emotional reactions are the same across all cultures. I mean, uh, maybe there's some cultures that find incest less abhorrent than we do, or... Uh, Apparently not. Really? Uh, <laughs> I mean, that is really a factual or, question. Or, well, let's take another thing, like uh, maybe whether a polygamy is, is okay or not okay, for instance. Uh, or, or the age of uh, allowed sexuality, for instance, that would vary across cultures. Does and I, I think, I mean, say Michael's right that this is a fact. There's still an interesting question whether it has to be a fact. So, mm-hmm. you know, what's you might, the fact that um, there is a, a um, moral thing that's th- universal? Th- that we all share a certain sort of attitude towards instas, for example, or anything else. Um, you might sitting on our armchairs we might think well maybe that happens to be true but um we can easily imagine um a society that didn't have this view so even if it turns out to be an empirical fact there might be something in we might ask why is that so and does it matter well uh, why is it so and does it matter <laughs> well in uh, you what you really want to know is um, is it a fact out of necessity is it biological necessity so maybe uh-huh. there are martians who wouldn't have this so um, well you know i guess if we're taking the standard view it's like we've evolved to have these uh these uh responses but uh, why i guess is would be the next question why why are these particular types of responses necessary that's right so then you get a kind of division between wh- what hume called an is and an ought so you might think well we happen to be like that we happen to think does, that certain things are right and that's wrong. right does that mean that we're right to think this and uh-huh. you you might um think no and that seems the more intuitive thought that just because we happen to be like that or to be wired to okay. have these thoughts it doesn't mean that they're true um or you might somehow try and derive um the ought from the is you might think that the norms of morality are somehow linked to norms of nature but this is this is an important question i think in in uh, in in morality isn't it it's uh, if our moral responses are really that contingent then there are no moral facts about things they're just the way we feel about things and that makes uh, all mor- all our mor- moral responses relative doesn't it well you might think that some of our responses are innate and others aren't and you might think even if the ones which are innate, we can, as it were, overturn them by thinking about the questions dif- thinking about the questions in quite a hard sort of way. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the end of the story, really. All you need to know is that we're capable of reasoning about these questions, and sometimes that will support the innate judgments we make, and sometimes it will undermine them.
But isn't it an important question in, in philosophy whether there are moral facts about the world? Otherwise, it just becomes a question of whatever you want to do is right. It, it, well, it, it is absolutely a very central question. Um, it's a question in meta-ethics more, more than a question in moral psychology. Sorry, meta-ethics um, being the theory right, about theories uh, about theories of ethics. Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, that is its Latin meaning. That's true. Um, meta-ethics asks precisely that question. Is morality objective? Are the moral facts? Right. Or is is what what is right or wrong simply dependent upon us? Uh-huh. Um, so that's one question. And then, if there are moral facts, how do we discover them? Would be another question in in meta ethics. So yes, that's a very important and big question in in ethics. But I think there are quite a few options here apart from the answers yes and no. For instance, if they do depend on us, in what in which way is it subjective? So that morality is no more than each individual person spouting an opinion for which there is no contradiction. Well, that's not how morality seems. I mean, no. take the case of murder. We don't think that murder is wrong is something which is subjective. We actually you know, have the death penalty in certain places in the world and in other places we, we lock people up. You can't do that with people for not liking turnips. Now that certainly seems to be much more subjective. So there's a difference between liking turnips and liking to murder people. Okay. So it seems there's a difference there any, which is not just any subjective. Any d- d- demurring from... I think that last claim is hard to disagree with. Yeah. <laughs> But still, I mean, uh, it still seems to boil down to uh, this is wrong because we think it's wrong, not because it actually is wrong. I mean, there's a general question in philosophy about how we can know that our own opinions are true. Uh We can't sort of step outside our own skins and compare our beliefs with the facts. So we always have to look at things from our own perspective at the same time. We might, from our perspective, try and have a try and live up to the truth. We try and gather evidence and reason about things to try to make sure that our views are sensible and coherent mm-hmm. and fit with whatever evidence it is that we do have. Okay. Um, now, I, I guess I want to ask a bit more of a practical question. Um, if, if suppose, I mean, I suppose I think one of you mentioned that you had the idea that we're only motivated to do what we want to do was that you were Alex yeah, to say right. yeah. so how if what we want to do is purely selfish I mean there is a view of of egoism that says that we're all just motivated to do what we're self you know what is in our own self interest sure. if that's true then how can we then how can we ever for, have formed a moral society and how can people be altruistic for instance Right, so as you say, egoism is the view that when people act, they're always motivated to act in their own interests. Right. And one key uh, reason for holding that view is that you sort of put two thoughts together. So one thought is that we're only ever motivated to act by our desires. And the other thought is doing what you want is always selfish. If you put those two thoughts together, it seems you get the egoistic view. You get the view people always act in their own interests. So it seems to me that one of those thoughts that leads to the theory is right, the view that we always act in whatever way most satisfies our desires, or something near enough. Um, But it seems to me the other part of that view is wrong. It seems to me it's just plain false to think that acting on your desires is being selfish. So I might want to help someone in the street. There I'm acting on my desire, if I indeed act. Um, But it's pretty clear that what I'm doing isn't selfish. I'm trying to help them after all. Yeah, but why is that in your self-interest? I guess the question is, why at all are you motivated to help other people at all? Well, so as I said earlier, I think that in desiring things, we're responding to the value we see in them. So what's going on there is you think there's something worthwhile about helping this person. And that's that's the reason why you have this desire to help them. Okay. 
So the idea is that desires needn't be self-interested themselves. So you can des- mm-hmm. have desires about things external to us, right. well, as well as about the self. Sorry, I guess Sorry. what I'm interested in: how did that desire arise in the first place? Why? Can I put a question back to you? Why would it? Why is it more puzzling to think that people could be motivated to help each other than to think that people are self selfish? Why couldn't I say? Wh- how do we explain why people are selfish? Well, I, I don't know. I guess if you look at the behaviour of um, young children, they seem in, in, innately selfish. So it seems like the natural state is selfishness, and you have to sort of be trained out of that. Ah, that's that again is something which I don't think is true. So uh, Gregory Batson's been doing work on this mm. on on. M- and whether it's innate and he has shown pretty conclusively over the last 40 years that actually children are just as innately altruistic sympathetic to the pains of others really? as they are selfish so it may be that of course they're more selfish than they are sympathetic or empathetic and in in moral education in developing their characters we want to encourage them to become um, more altruistic but it looks like it's just as much an innate part of us and just this last week in fact scientists found that this goes as far as as rats Um, Uh dolphins have been known to do it bats have been known to do it this last week we've discovered that rats do it too so it looks like Altruism is built into uh, at least mammals a long for, for has been for a very long time. Okay. Um, anybody want to add anything? Or one move, move on? I thought Michael was going to break into song there. Even rats do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, Let's be altruistic. <laughs> um, one famous problem I think uh, from Aristotle concerns the weakness of the will, which is a crazier I think in Greek. Um, how is it possible for you to do what you don't believe you should do? I mean, suppose you you believe that you should lose weight and there's a cake in front of you. You have the cake, but you believe it's against your interests. So how is that possible on this sort of view? So um, Aristotle's answer, or at least one account of Aristotle's answer, is that the belief or even maybe knowledge um, that you shouldn't do this is somehow uh, momentarily impaired or or clouded. So think of the case where um, you have the ability to ride a bicycle, but then you have a few pints, and you're not capable of riding the bicycle, but you don't lose the ability altogether. There's a sense in which you still know how to do it, but for this moment in time, you can't. So you've got your reason is veiled. Um, so it's veiled in a way. So you might think, yes, I still have this knowledge, but I've somehow lost the access to it um, in this moment, um, maybe under the um, force of the cake or whatever that's... But I would say that's me. a direct... Um, that's a direct example of where your reason... Your, your reason is being overridden by your emotions or your desires. I mean, isn't it? Well, it's a case of um, knowledge or ability um, to act upon your reason being um, impaired or veiled, as, as, as mm-hmm. you put it. Um, but it might still be there in the sense that um, later on you, you, you might um, regain it and wonder, how on earth did I do that? Why on earth did I do that? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's temporary. I think, I mean, the question of how weakness of the will is possible only makes sense if you think that people are rational. Right. Like, generally, we're rational. We, we, we do what we think we have most reason to do most of the time. Right. If you don't think that, 
<laughs> if you don't, if you think people are actually just as irrational as they are rational, that people aren't, you know, generally trying to do what they think they have most reason to do, mm-hmm. um, or you have a sort of inherently conflicted model, then weakness of the will is not something which needs as much explanation. So mm-hmm. um, you don't, you, you can think, well, ha- you may as well ask, well, how is it that sometimes we do do what we think um, <laughs> we have most reason to do? Okay. Why do sometimes we act in a way which we think we should act? That's amazing. And you were asking that just a moment ago. How is it that we're altruistic rather than selfish? Um, Sometimes. Sometimes, exactly. So uh, it depends which way you approach human nature as to whether you think weakness of the will is something which needs explanation or whether strength of the will actually needs explanation. I mean, you might think both of these things need explanation, right? You might think that in both cases you need to explain what sorts of things affect how you're motivated so whether it's desires are important and sometimes they go in line with your judgments about what's best and sometimes they point the other direction or whether the problem is that you sometimes fail to execute your intentions or well there's all sorts of possibilities here so i don't think we should so in both cases i think you're right there's a need for an explanation but that shouldn't make us think you don't need an explanation in either case you know there's twice as much work to do given what you said which is fine that keeps us in the job okay uh, great i think we're going to go to uh, the next song now and uh, i've got uh, sean hender and adam leach and uh, they're going to be uh, performing dreaming that's right graham thank you okay
You're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show. Um, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine. I have with me Michael Lacewing, uh, uh, Alex Gregory and Constantine Sandis, and we're talking about moral psychology. Um, just getting uh, back into this, uh, what are the limits to how morality can be studied psychologically compared to philosophically? I mean... Um, so we, we, we've heard... Um, some questions that I think were more philosophical right. and some that had more to do with empirical studies when we were talking about facts. And I think one thing we haven't said explicitly that at least I think philosophers do well is to examine our notions or concepts of things um, rather than um, the things themselves, maybe. And this can be very important. For, for example, there may, it may turn out that um, different philosophers and, and psychologists are working with different notions of uh -huh. desire or motivation. It might be that mm. some work with uh, the, I the idea that to desire just is to be motivated, in which case it would be no surprise that these things came together. Um, and I think it's important to ask when we ask uh, when we think about these things to ask, for example, if you think an action was desired, do you mean it was desired in the sense in which it was voluntary, or the sense in which it was intentional, or or some third thing? Okay. And that sometimes we need to get clear on these things in order so to make they progress. So they work in tandem or like DNA entwined together, really. Uh, to yeah, I think interdisciplinary. Pro okay. progress, there's a lot of space for that. I mean, there is a sort of ideal of science that in science what you have to do is value-free in some way. You're dealing not at all with values. And obviously philosophers, especially those working at least near to ethics, are interested in questions of value. Yeah. So I think What is good sense, and what is bad and things exactly like that. Exactly right. Yeah. So to that extent, I think there is a distinction to be made between the sorts of work, the sorts of questions we're interested in and the sorts of questions scientists are interested in. Um, and just to disagree a little bit with what Constantine just said, I take it that when we're inquiring to what's good and how we ought to live our lives, that's not merely a question about our concepts, but also a question about, well, reality in some sense. Mm -hmm. We're not just examining our, the way we think, we're examining what we ought to do. Yes, I mean, I didn't want to suggest it was merely about concepts, but no, it was more that no. um, we might need to do that conceptual work in order to make sure that we both really are asking the same question or, valid, or yeah, answering sure. it. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, an example of that that came up earlier was whether reason and emotion is a contrast, right? or whether in our understanding of emotion there's actually a place for what we can understand as reason. And that's not something which actually is settled psychologically or purely psychologically. For instance, by suppose we establish that normal reason 
reasoning processes or emotion-free reasoning processes use different neural circuits from emotional processing mm-hmm. systems. Okay, does that mean, just like that, that emotions are not rational? No, it doesn't, because it might be that there are two kinds of reasoning process, mm-hmm. emotional and non-emotional, and that's yeah. something which okay. involves philosophy as so well as just, psychology. It just gets more and more complicated the oh, more of course. bits you add in. <laughs> okay. Uh, how can... You make it sound like a bad thing. No, I just think I just think there's no, you know, knowledge is like a fractal, isn't it? The deeper you go into it, the more things open up. Uh, how um, how can um, moral psychology help us to choose between competing ethical theories and and. Well, there's I mean, there's there's a lot of work which has been going on. Um, with philosophers interested in some of the empirical studies on this. Um, and, I mean, just, just to t- pick two examples. Uh, one is uh, a philosopher at Harvard called Joshua Green, who's been mm-hmm. working on moral intuitions, our intuitions in practical cases, whether we should do this or do that. Uh-huh. And here's a partic- here, the example he's been looking at is you have a, a trolley or a train coming down a track right. which has a siding. And on the track in front of the train, there are five people. Right. And on the siding, there is one person. And nobody can get out of the way of the train. The train can't break. Should you change the track, change the setting of the track, the points, so that the train goes down the siding and kills one person rather than five? And people have interestingly different intuitions, and you vary the case, you get different intuitions. And he thinks that he has shown that some of these intuitions are irrational because they involve certain emotional responses, and others of them are rational. So he thinks he can draw um, a, a philosophical conclusion Mm-hmm. Um, actually in favour of the view that you should do the least harm or the most good to people rather than that you shouldn't um, deliberately intervene in ways which would offend anybody, for instance. So some people say, no, you can't change it because that means you would kill the one person. Other people say you have to change it because otherwise the train would kill five people. So that's one example. Another is that some people have been arguing, um, following some stuff in psychology, that there's no such thing as character. Right. Now that comes as a bit of a surprise. But mm-hmm. if there is no such thing as character, <laughs> then a theory like Aristotle's, which says that morality is all about becoming a good person, mm-hmm. having a good character, can't work. What does it mean there's no such thing as character? That doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, surely we've got standard ways we behave in, in certain situations. Well, that's so. what you think. And this is one of the shocking things of the last 40 years. There's uh-huh. a movement in social psychology called situationism, uh-huh. which has gathered a huge amount of inf- um, evidence to show that for most people, in fact, what what influences what they do in any situation are particular things in the situation. Uh-huh. So, for instance, um, suppose here's a here's an actual example. They set up. Suppose you see somebody drop their letters, right. okay, in a public place. Do you stop and help them? And you might think that what we'll get is that people who are nice. Okay, have that disposition to be nice and helpful generally will be the people who stop, and people who aren't nice won't. It turns out that much more influential than that is whether the people have just found a 10p piece um, lying about mm-hmm. in the place. And if they found a 10p piece, it's much more likely that they'll stop and help the other person. If they haven't, it isn't. Okay. And you can do this again and again and again. So it looks like we behave by reacting to situations and not because we have any standing dispositions, as you say, to behave in particular ways in particular situations. Okay. That's only half the evidence, then. All right. Constantine, you were nodding, which doesn't really work so well on the radio. No, actually, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 was, I think it was an inner nod. I'm sceptical about 
um, the conclusions of these experiments and how they're reached. Uh-huh. Um, uh, why, um, why are you sceptical? So, so f- for example, one thing you might ask, that, um, the, the way Michael just framed the question is, so does that mean they already know in advance who's nice and who isn't? And then they, they decide, oh, look, that didn't have any effect. Well, if that's true, then presumably there is such a thing as niceness. It just doesn't have an effect, and therefore there is such a thing as character. If, on the other hand, they can't decide in advance who's nice and who's not, then it's not clear how they can be sure that it is the situation um, that's doing this, other than some kind of statistical thing, which is compatible with, um, you know, the the majority of people having an average kind of character. Okay, so you're saying at this late point in the show that there (laughs) may be some uh, problems with the way that these moral psychologists uh, phrase their experiments, for instance. Um, Yes, and their inferences. So it may be that their data is extremely interesting, Uh um, but the inferences they draw from it are uh, I'd say too strong. So there's still a lot of work to be done in this area uh, It's a good thing yeah. <laughs> Okay, um, so maybe I'll, I'll ask you, you to, to finish there Alex, so what Thanks future on. developments, or maybe anybody can add but what future developments do you foresee or are you working on, what sort of things Um, what are you working on that you're trying to find out well i'm still working on as i said desires and trying to work out what they are Uh Um, seems like there's some interesting what's the what's the aim of what you're trying to do what are you trying to prove or discover um so i suppose i'm partly trying to come to a conclusion about this very very popular view that the way you ought to act is determined entirely by what it is that you want determined by Uh your desires the truth of that view is as you might imagine hotly contested and has been for a very long time. Um, I think it would certainly be a good thing if we could resolve whether that theory is true or not. Um, whether whether we will, I guess we don't know yet. That's the point of doing the research. What, what's your feeling right now? Uh, uh, I don't think I have time to... Yeah, okay. <laughs> the answer's complicated. That's fair enough. Okay, uh, I don't really think we've uh, got a lot of time does anybody got any last thoughts they want to add on the on the top anything that you think anybody out there listening really needs to know about moral psychology to end with uh, one thought very briefly we haven't mentioned anything about the unconscious or very right. little about the unconscious there's a lot of work going on now um not in in the sort of psychoanalytic sense but in the notion that a lot of the way in which we react a lot of the way in which we think um and are motivated is outside our consciousness and there's a lot of work going on um in psychology at the moment about how the conscious and the unconscious systems mm-hmm. that influence our actions interact and i think we're going to see a lot of work um on that going forward sure mm. um, uh, Constantine, what? That's right, and that relates thoughts? to um, contemporary work on reasons as well, and I think future work. So think of the examples Michael was giving um, before with with a um, train track and whether you um, what you do in a given situation and people's intuitions. Um, one thing the experiments might show is that um, the reasons we give uh, might not be. Um, the same as um, uh, our real motives. Reasons. Well, what some people are tempted to call our real reasons. So we might give these kind of complicated reasons for why we prefer um, we do one thing in one scenario and would do another in another. Uh-huh. Um, but arguably, um, hidden m- motives and other factors for our for our um, intuitions can can be uncovered. Okay, thank you. And Alex, any last thoughts on moral psychology you want the listeners to take away with them? 
Uh, I can't think of anything that springs to mind. Okay, well, we'll just go, uh, go st- st- straight into... So- well, before we go into the song, let me, let me say that uh, you've got a website that people can go to, Adam, if they want to. What's that? They can come and say hello at adampaulleach.com. Okay, any, anybody got any pro- projects they want to plug quickly on, on the air? Okay, I've got... My books are uh, Love, Solitude and Destruction, which is a book of short stories, and The Meta Revolution, which is a philosophy meta-manifesto. You can get them on line and we're going to just uh, next week we're doing the philosophy of human rights and you've been listening to the philosophy now radio show and we're going to end with uh, adam and paul doing a song called fallen okay. i've got a bird to whistle and i've got a bird to sing and this girl I'm loving Oh, she doesn't mean a thing Cause I am falling Yes, I'm falling I am falling for you Lord, can you save me? Can you save me from myself? The devil's gone and turned me, gone and turned me inside out. I'm coming home, but I don't know when. And if you're there, we can start again and love each other when we are old. Yes, I.